thank everyone uh, for joining us here today. And today what we're going to do is, uh, as the uh, Foreign Relations Committee of the United States Senate of the 116th Congress, we're going to continue our review uh, from a 30 or 50,000 foot level of uh, observations about what the world looks like today and uh, where we're headed as we journey into the 21st century further. Uh, we're, of course, approaching the, uh, the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, and there are some things that have become evident, and uh, that's what uh, we're going to continue to focus on in these hearings. After, uh, and today, of course, we're going to talk about uh, China and uh, where we've been and uh, where we're headed as far as our relationship with China is concerned. After 20 years of helping China prosper economically and hoping they would emerge as a responsible partner on the world stage, it is time for U.S. policymakers to acknowledge this path was not the right path. But of course, we have the advantage of hindsight now, which we didn't have when we started on this journey. Today, China steals our intellectual property and uses it to put our people out of work. It intimidates its neighbors, including close U.S. allies, while increasing its military capabilities in the South and East China Seas. China exports corruption and its authoritarian model across the globe. It uses cheap financing as a debt trap and has built a police state that the Chinese Communist Party uses to limit free expression that contradicts the party line. These are not the actions of a responsible stakeholder. Rather, it proves that the assumption that as China continued to rise, it would begin to mature into a responsible international actor was and is wrong. It is clear the Chinese Communist Party does not share the same values that the United States and our partners have. To them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness aren't aspirations to deliver to their people, but values the Communist Party should fear and control. As we enter a new era of relations with China, we must be clear-eyed and honest about the challenges ahead. China is seeking to be a preeminent power in Asia, but its ambitions are broader. It is building naval bases in Africa, stealing the intellectual property of Western companies, subsidizing its companies overseas to gain economic and political leverage, and threatening military conflict with its neighbors. Given Chinese behavior over the past several years, economic, political, and military, some now believe conflict is inevitable. I don't think it is, at least not yet. But the relationship must be rebalanced in order to avoid future conflict and provide a sustainable way forward for both countries. The Trump administration has forced a new conversation on what the relationship will look like moving forward. Its trade policies show Beijing that business as usual is over. We won't stand for our ideas and technologies being stolen, and we won't stand for our people losing their jobs to unfair competition. The best example of this type of behavior comes from my home state of Idaho. Micron Technology, the second largest producer of semiconductors in the world, has had their intellectual property stolen by a Chinese company, patented in China, and then used to sue Micron in Chinese courts directed by the Chinese government. To its credit, the Trump administration imposed sanctions for this action and brought criminal charges against those responsible. 
But economics isn't the whole ballgame. Chinese foreign policy is increasingly aggressive, and Chinese military activity in the region is on the rise. They have created and armed artificial outposts in the South China Sea, illegally claimed annexation of nearly the entire sea, and claimed territorial waters from sovereign countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, and Taiwan. As a side note, it's important to note that China and its victims in its maritime misadventures are all members of the Law of the Sea Treaty, which has been useless against China in this conflict. If China is allowed to control the Western Pacific, it would present a major challenge to the free movement of goods across the globe, potentially allowing Beijing to hold the international trade system hostage. The territorial issues in the South and East China Seas need to be resolved according to internationally recognized norms, and we need to support all countries that wish to use and abide by this process. Let's be clear. China has no allies, only transactional partners and states and states too weak to push back. The strength of the United States is found in our alliances and partnerships. These partnerships are critical to protecting international laws and norms and push back on Chinese coercion and economic leverage around the world. Domestically, if a Chinese citizen wants to prosper, the Communist Party requires them to surrender to surveillance state and party line. To those who refuse, they are subject to immense suppression tactics, such as imprisonment and forced disappearances of political prisoners. The whole groups that the Communist Party, to whole groups the Communist Party opposes, such as the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities, the solution is even more simple. Send them to re-education camps. It is hard for China to be a responsible world actor if it violates the most basic human rights of its own people. Unfortunately, the Communist Party also does not realize that diversity actually encourages innovation and prosperity. U.S. policy must defend those who struggle for freedom. But it is not lost, all lost yet. I believe there is still time to rebalance our relations and address the foundational problems impacting our relationship, like the rule of law and trade that is free and fair. The Trump administration is already engaged in this process, but much, much more needs to be done. My hope is that China will take the opportunities at hand and itself change its own policies and commit to working with the rest of the world in order that all benefit and prosper under the rule of law, human rights, restrained military activity, and economic action that is free, fair, and absent corruption. With that, I'll yield to the, uh, to the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me thank Senator Talent and Dr. Mastro for joining us today and helping us understand uh, one of the biggest foreign policy challenges on our nation's uh, agenda, dealing with the strategic challenge of a rising and perhaps risen China. When we consider the strategic challenge of China, the characterization does speak to a deeper truth. China is playing four-dimensional chess across every element of national security, militarily, economically, diplomatically, and culturally. In the maritime domain and in the South China Sea in particular, China's aggressive island-building campaign and its rejection of international law threaten not just regional stability, but long-standing U.S. interests in the free flow of commerce, freedom of navigation, and diplomatically resolving disputes consistent with international law. Economically, I sincerely hope that the current U.S.-China trade negotiations will result 
in real structural reform. Over the past decade, we've seen a determined China bend the rules to its own benefit on trade and economic matters as it's made its way to be the world's second largest economy. But structural challenges remain in China's often cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property rights, in its unfair advantages by manipulating market access, and in its underwriting of state-owned enterprises, and the intertwined relationships between companies like Huawei and the Chinese national security apparatus raise serious questions. Diplomatically, China has fashioned a brand of international diplomacy often rooted in manipulative investment. More subtly, China's Belt and Road Initiative has seen its influence work its way across the world in port contracts and United Nations voting patterns. Overtly, China continues cooperation with North Korea, where after some initial toughening in 2017 and 18, we once again see a lessening of pressure out of concern for regime stability. China has developed complex influence campaigns by traditional and non-traditional means. China may not manipulate social media the way we saw with Russian uh, tradecraft in 2016, but its tentacles of influence are far-reaching. The launch of the Confucius Institutes on many U.S. campuses, the desire to set up party cells in U.S. businesses, and espionage targeted at both universities pursuing high-tech research, all speak to the pervasive extent of China's united front efforts. And while we consider Chinese foreign policy endeavors, let us also point out that domestically, Xi Jinping has overseen the emergence of a neo-Maoist authoritarian model and a total surveillance state. The government is pursuing a brutal crackdown on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, including the internment of an estimated one million people in camps subjected to, quote, re-education campaigns, forced labor, and total surveillance. All of these dynamics make constructing an effective China policy uniquely challenging for U.S. policymakers. Now, I know it may surprise some of my colleagues, but I agree with President Trump when it comes to recognizing the scope of challenge that China presents to the United States and to the entire international order. But I do not think the President has found the right approach. As others have noted, merely being more confrontational with China that does not make us more competitive with China. So we have to ask, are there still opportunities for cooperation? What are the risks of the competition becoming conflict? 30 years ago, we debated whether or not China would rise to be a major power. 10 years ago, we wondered what sort of power China would be. Today, the book is not by any means closed. On the contrary, new pages and chapters are beginning to emerge. And I have to tell you, Mr. Chairman, the reading so far is not promising. We must be holistically strategic, leveraging all of our diplomatic tools. Slashing America's foreign affairs budget, as the Trump administration has yet again proposed, weakens our ability to effectively confront China's economic and diplomatic reach around the globe. As we contemplate a more competitive environment with China, we also need to pay attention to building, not destroying our alliances and partnerships. I have repeatedly argued that core American values must be the centerpiece of our foreign policy. China's model is appealing, unfortunately, in all too many parts of the world. We must offer a better model. In celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act and a strong partnership with Taiwan, we also celebrate the values of a flourishing democracy. 
So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today on how to better understand the strategic and economic realities unfolding with the rise of China and how to best structure U.S. policy to safeguard our national interests and our values. Thank you, Senator Menendez. And uh, with that, we'll turn to uh, our first witness, Senator Jim Talent, who uh, is currently a commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, a body that was established in part to review the national security implications of trade and economic ties between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Additionally, Senator Talon is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, as well as the director of the National Security 2020 Project and visiting senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, Senator Talon served the people of Missouri here in Washington, D.C. for 14 years, first as a member of the House of Representatives and then here in the United States Senate. With that, Senator Talent, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to Senator Menendez and the committee for, uh, for inviting me. I, I, I'm pretty certain you asked me here because, basically because I'm on the China Commission, I've served there for six years. I, I will say a word about the commission. Uh, it was established in 2000 upon China's accession to the WTO. Its function is to review every year annually the economic and security relationship between the United States and China. We hold hearings, we produce papers, we produce an annual report that's like 550 pages long. It's very thoroughly documented and it's become a kind of standard reference, I think, in the field and I'm proud of the staff and the commission, particularly the longstanding members. It's very professional and I recommend it to you as a resource. Uh, my main message, uh, my views here are my own, my main message from the commission is that we are statutorily and functionally a creature and servant of the Congress of the United States. So anything we can help you with, any request, I'd encourage you or your staff to make it if we can help you in any way. My statement goes through the background that both the, the chairman and the, uh, and the ranking member covered. I'll cover it very briefly. Um, it's hard to be brief. I, I did serve in this body, and some <laughs> habits are hard to break, uh, but, I'll, but I'll do it. I think it's fair to say that for really 40 years after Richard Nixon's visit to China in 1972, our government pursued a policy of encouraging and assisting China in developing, in, in developing economically and participating uh, in international affairs. And I think we have to be fair. There were reasons uh, for believing that China's trajectory uh, would be hopeful. Uh, they were introducing a number of the features of uh, economic liberalization in their economy. Uh, there were and are voices in China, um, even after Tiananmen Square, arguing for political liberalization. And that was a period of time when many authoritarian regimes were becoming democracies. And so there was a reason for the prevailing view during the period, and many of you served uh, in that period. I did. Uh, the, the logic was if the Chinese Communist Party wanted China to become wealthy, and it did, it would have to continue liberalizing its economy. There was a good chance that that would lead to political liberalization, and even if it didn't, the discipline of participating in the world economic system would end up at least making China a responsible player in regional and world affairs. So in other words, the prevailing view was that full participation in the world economic system uh, would change China in the right direction, but I also think it's fair to say that what actually happened was that China, under the Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party, is changing the world trading system and is threatening the broader international order as well as, as, as uh, the interests and 
security of the United States and its allies in the region. So my statement goes through two of the categories of, uh, of methods that they have developed pretty systematically to do that. Uh, one, and I'll, and I'll refer to an attachment that I put in my statement, I know um, senators have, and by the way, Mr. Chairman, I understand I need to ask that the attachments be included in the record. It will be, thank you. Uh, China's techno-nationalism toolbox, which is a really good short resource for you and your staff about the tools that uh, the CCP, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, has developed to maximize the benefits uh, it receives under the world trading system while pretty systematically uh, avoiding its, uh, its obligations. So those include uh, massive subsidies uh, to firms, particularly in the sectors that are part of the Made in China 2025 project that lowers the cost of capital, enables them to compete not just effectively at home, but capture markets abroad against competitors, force technology transfer, uh, requiring joint ventures with Chinese firms as a condition of doing business and then getting the technology, foreign investment restrictions designed to grow domestic champions, uh, discriminatory regulatory enforcement against Chinese firms. Of, of, we heard testimony a couple years ago that over a three-year period, the Chinese antitrust regulatory body filed like 24 antitrust actions, all of them against Chinese uh, foreign firms. There was like no Chinese firms had any antitrust problems. China's specific tech standards that discourage foreign firms from entering. And then as, as uh, the chair and the ranking member mentioned, outright theft of technology that amounts to probably several hundred billion dollars a year. Now, again, to be fair, uh, there are many countries that maneuver on the margin of the world trading system to get advantages for themselves. But I do think this is the first time we've seen an economy of this size so systematically attempt to evade the obligations of the system. And I think it amounts to a subversion or attempted subversion of the system and that WTO procedures, which don't anticipate that, are inadequate to deal with it. China's used this growing wealth, among other things, uh, for a massive buildup of its armed forces. Uh, I, I'm bumping up against the, uh, the five-minute limit, so I will refer to my statement on that. That has empowered them, as the chair and the ranking member mentioned, in a series of uh, a provocative and aggressive actions uh, in their near seas. The committee is as familiar with that uh, as I am. Uh, now, I, what I do want to say is that um, Fortunately, the Obama administration in 2011 uh, reacted, I think, pretty quickly and decisively uh, to the provocations with its pivot or rebalance policy. In form, that was a redirection of American foreign policy towards Asia. In fact, uh, it was a signal that the era of wishful thinking about Chinese intentions was over, and the administration followed it up uh, by shifting additional forces to the region to the extent we had them to shift. You can't shift ships that you don't have. Firming up our alliances, highlighting, for example, Chinese cyber espionage. And the Trump administration, I agree, has extended and deepened uh, the, uh, the, the strategic shift embodied in the rebalance. Um, the national security strategy names great power competition uh, as, uh, as the primary goal of American foreign policy or object of it and names China appropriately. Uh, as, as the, the greatest challenge. The administration has also uh, canvassed and reinvigorated the economic tools that it is using to leverage against uh, the, the, the Chinese illicit actions. I, I do want to say I'm very proud of the role Congress has played in the last three years as a former senator and former member, uh, lifting the defense sequester, strengthening CFIUS, 
passing the BUILD Act, which was a miracle that you guys accomplished, and uh, I think it's a tremendous foundation going forward, and then ARIA, the Asian Reassurance uh, uh, Initiative Act, which I, I think foreshadows many more good things to come. So you don't get many compliments, uh, but I want to give you one. So I'll just close with, 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 uh, with three things. Um, first, I think we are, the right way to think of where we are now is in a time of transition that is similar to the 1945-1955 timeframe. Not in the sense that we are entering a Cold War. I don't think we are, and I don't think we want to think of it that way. But it was during that period of time that, on a bipartisan basis, the Congress and the executive, through two administrations, built the architecture of tools, doctrine, and institutions that successive administrations used in the Cold War for the 40 years thereafter. And I see what is happening now as the same thing, albeit applied to a different kind of challenge. Uh, second, there are reasons, and my statement goes through them, the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party is doing what it is doing. Those are powerful reasons, rooted deeply in their thinking. They are not going to voluntarily and fundamentally change policy. We can expect this to continue in more or less this form unless and until costs and consequences are imposed uh, which, which channel them in a different direction. Third, it's important to keep in mind our competition is not with the Chinese people. The problem here is not the pride of the Chinese people in their history or their culture or their aspirations for the future. The problem is the way in which the Chinese Communist Party is defining its ambitions for China and the methods it is using to achieve those ambitions. And finally, I would remind you all that, I mean, I, there's a formula that I like to, that I find helpful to think of, that influence is the product of intention and capability. Intention is relatively easy to change. You all have changed intention. Uh, going back to the rebalance and pivot. And I, I don't think the intention is changing back when I listen to the statements of the chairman and the ranking member. Capability is not easy to change. And the truth of the matter is that we allowed too many of the tools of influence to atrophy over the years and failed to build up others that were appropriate to this challenge. So what you're doing now really is, is thoughtfully but vigorously and quickly considering the tools that we're going to need going forward and putting them into place. And I'd encourage you to think of, of your work in that, in that way. I know the committee's going to be at the epicenter of it, and I'm very encouraged by what you've done. And again, the commission stands ready to help you, as do I personally, in any way that I can. <clears throat> Senator Talent, thank you very much. As you noted, uh, you went substantially over your yeah. time. But, no, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Even though, you, uh, even though you've uh, hung up your toga, you have not given up uh, the Senate habits. And so, <laughs> In that I, regard, we will give you. I never liked you, to you give, have but our I didn't then, but I very much appreciate your indulgence in that of the thank ranking member. Much. Thank you. But thank you so much. Those are those are great, uh, great statements. Uh, now we have uh, Dr. Uh, Oriana uh, Mastro. Dr. Uh, Mastro is an assistant professor of security studies in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where she focuses on Chinese military and security policy. Asia-Pacific Issues, War Termination, and uh, Course of Diplomacy. She is also an officer in the United States Air Force Reserve, thank you, for which she works as a political military affairs strategist at PACAF and is currently 
the Jean Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, Dr. Master was a uh, Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a fellow in the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, a, uh, a University of Virginia Miller Center National Fellow, a Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Pacific Forum uh, Saskawa Peace Fellow, and a pre-doctoral fellow at the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at George Washington University. Additionally, she has worked on China policy issues at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, RAND Corporation, U.S. Pacific Command, and Project 2049. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss some of the ways China is increasing its power and influence, in some cases at the expense of the United States. The views I'm about to express are my own, though given the time constraints, I'm going to try to use more of my military training and less of my academic training to make my comments as brief as possible. China's economic growth has been astounding. But for me, perhaps even more significant has been China's ability to translate its economic growth into vast economic political and military power on the world stage, especially over the past 20 years. This is surprising because China actually started out in a weaker position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. China's system and values are generally less attractive to most around the world than those of the United States. China also doesn't have any allies or really strong partners. Its military is still greatly inferior to that of the United States in terms of power projection capabilities, though I list in my testimony how they have uh, managed to create some severe operational difficulties in the region. Its economy, we have to remember, has been smaller than that of the United States over the past 20 years, and it entered an international order in which the United States wielded a disproportionate degree of influence. But even with all these disadvantages, China's relative power has grown to the point that we now find ourselves in a great power competition. And so this situation highlights the theme of my testimony today, which is to look at how China has managed to make such power gains over the past 20 years. I think answering this question can provide some critical insights into how the United States should increase its own competitiveness in this great power competition. In my written testimony, I go through this obviously in much more detail, but my bottom line argument is that to date, China has gained power and influence by focusing on areas where the U.S. ability and willingness to compete has been relatively weak. And then leveraging China's own strengths, its own comparative advantages, in new and entrepreneurial ways to build power in those areas. Admittedly, China's efforts have not always been successful, but we know that its share of world power has increased, suggesting that it succeeds more often than it fails. In terms of China's approach to building political power, uh, it has been mentioned that China only joined many of these international institutions in the 1990s, and the United States largely supported this change with the idea that the more China participated, the more it would be socialized into the then current norms and rules of behavior. We know now that the logic of this U.S. support was proven flawed. But to me, the problem is not China's participation in international institutions. The central problem is that these institutions have not adapted to ensure that China is accommodated in the few cases where its aims are legitimate, and that the institutions can constrain Chinese behavior when Chinese uh, aims are not legitimate. The United States has also not attempted to build new institutions to, con to address contemporary issues. And so as a result, China has been able to build up power by exploiting many gaps in the international order, 
by building alternative institutions, and then actually by shaping a lot of rules and norms in its favor. There's many areas where these norms are either non-existent or weak, and China's been actively working uh, to shape them so that they benefit China economically, politically, and military. In terms of their approach to military power, I think this is one area where their entrepreneurial approach is extremely clear. China has long understood that to succeed in reaching great power status, they had to avoid a strong response from the United States to delay action. And they've done so by being relatively ambiguous to date, at, le at least until the past couple of years about what their intentions have been. There's nowhere I think that China's entrepreneurial strategies are more evident than their anti-access area denial strategy. This is when they focus on low-cost asymmetric capabilities designed to erode U.S. military supremacy and to make it difficult for the United States to come to the aid of our allies in the region in case of a conflict with China. Another area where they've been very entrepreneurial is in their um, approach to building power and influence in the South China Sea. Instead of directly confronting the United States, in my position, and, and I would say from reading Chinese writings and listening to Chinese speeches, this is not controversial, is that China wants to be dominant in the Indo-Pacific region, and dominance includes uh, pushing the United States military out of the region. But to do so, they haven't done so directly. They engage, for example, in gray zone activities, which means that China increases the risk of the United States in operating in the South China Sea by harassing our vessels and aircraft with non-military platforms. And this makes it very difficult for us to respond. In my written testimony, I go through great detail about China's strategy to control the South China Sea. And I do so only to highlight uh, my, one of my final points, which is that the South China Sea lies, in my view, at the center of this geopolitical co uh, competition. To sum up, I don't think it's fair to say that China has been outcompeting the United States. In many ways, the United States has not been competing. We have not been present in many of these areas, in many of these countries where China has focused on building its influence. When they use industrial policy or infrastructure building, the amount of money that the United States has focused on these efforts has been quite small. And when it comes to the military, while the rebalancing was a step in the right direction, the United States military still does not have the platforms, the posture, the basing, and the training that it needs to ensure it prevails in most conflicts in Asia. Washington needs to get back into the game. We need to start competing again. And I don't think we should do so by lowering our standards to China's level. While imperfect implementation, the values and principles behind U.S. global power and leadership ensure that others also benefit. China's Achilles heel, in my mind, is that its leaders have failed to articulate a vision of Chinese dominance that is beneficial for anyone but China. In the pursuit of economic, political, and military power, I believe the protection of liberal values needs to be our guidepost and a priority. Many things that we can do to be more competitive, um, and I'm happy to address some of those in the Q&A, but I do think Washington needs to embark on a program of institution building and take seriously the idea that we need to shape international norms in our favor and fill gaps so that China can not exploit the international system to its benefit. And we need to leverage our own strengths against Chinese weaknesses, one of which is our allies and partners and ability to build coalitions. This is not a great power competition between the United States and China. This is between China and the United States with our allies and partners. And being competitive does not mean confronting China and undermining China. It means making ourselves a more attractive global partner. It will take immense political capital to facilitate such cooperation among nations, 
But this is the only way I believe to ensure that the United States, in conjunction with its allies and partners, maintains the vast share of power and influence in the international system, which I believe is to all countries' benefit. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll now go to a round of questions. I'm going to take uh, just a brief shot here at the beginning. Dr. Mastro, that was an interesting observation you made uh, regarding uh, China's uh, uh, work around the world where they build infrastructure. They're, they're really focused on that. Uh, we, we see that everywhere we go where their, their uh, hands are involved in that. And interestingly, our hand is there too, but instead of infrastructure, it's on humanitarian aid. Um, what, what do you think about the balance of the spending, uh, us doing it on humanitarian aid and they doing it on infrastructure building? How, how, would, you, uh, how would you address that? Mr. Chairman, I think this really highlights the point of the fact that we need to look at our own comparative advantages instead of trying to respond to China by doing exactly what they do. So a lot of countries do have this demand for infrastructure, and I think the United States needs to get more involved in that game. But on the other hand, humanitarian aid, uh, assistance, disaster relief, these are some of the ways that the United States has provided leadership. Uh, in the international system that are to the benefit of other nations and where China is actually relatively weak. And so I think we should be doing much more of this humanitarian aid and highlighting to the countries around the world that this is some service that the United States provides that China does not provide. Do you agree that uh, uh, I, what I find, I don't know if others find this too, but in uh, that, that particular item, and that is us doing humanitarian things, the Chinese doing infrastructure things where they're actually trying to get their hands on something in a country is, is becoming better and better known around the world. Each, each of us, the United States and China, is developing a reputation in that regard. Do you agree or disagree with that? I agree with that. I think, in general, China prefers weaker partners. And that's another fundamental difference between us and, and the Chinese. Now, it's, the jury is still out on how successful their strategy is going to be because I think countries are learning that over time, it's not beneficial for them to be in that weaker position vis-a-vis -vis China, as the Chinese are willing to use coercion um, to ensure that their will is accommodated. But those countries need alternatives. And for example, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, one of the areas it first entered into is Central Asia. This is not a place where China was replacing the United States. We were not present, not only sort of politically, militarily, but also economically. So we need to be able to provide countries with alternatives to this cheap investment. Okay, good. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for very thoughtful testimony. Let me say, it seems that there are as many uh, opinions regarding China's global intentions as there are analysts. Uh, with some saying that it's strictly economic, while others saying to seek to change the global system of uh, governance, and still others asserting that China only wants to uh, achieve regional hegemony. So I'd like to ask both of you, in your view, what does China want in the near term, in the long term, and why? And secondly, what are, in your views, the three most important things the United States can do to protect its interests in all of its dimensions vis-a-vis -vis China? Uh, you've, you've really asked a $64 question, Senator, which is, what is the ultimate object of these policies? I refer in my statement to the fact that they're seeking a kind of hegemony in East Asia, but what, what does that really mean? 
And um, I think I, I would answer that with reference to one of the, uh, the reasons that they're doing it. I, in my statement, I talk about sets of reasons being one set of reasons is, is nationalistic and historical. So a Japanese scholar said to me a few years ago when I was visiting, he said, you have to understand they view, we view the world horizontally and they view it vertically. So we, we view the international order as one in which nations relate to each other basically according to agreed upon rules and resolve disputes according to those rules and resolve them uh, peacefully where there are no rules, negotiate peacefully. Said so they view the international order or, 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 or relations between nations as one in which uh, the larger and more powerful nations naturally get the benefits. And if you think in terms of the history, uh, it, their way of looking at the world has actually been the predominant way in which nations have related to each other through most of history. I mean, I'm not really even attacking them for this. And I think they are more comfortable in that kind of a setting, just as we are more comfortable in ours. The, the order that we and our allies and most of the world has built comports with our values. Uh, we believe it preserves the peace, and it is one in which we have prospered. And as Dr. Mastro said, many nations have had an opportunity to prosper. So I do think, as an ultimate objective, they want to move the world more in the direction of their view of how nations ought to relate to each other. Mm -hmm. Any suggestions on the top two or three things we should be doing? Well, look, I have to say, I, I put an attachment to the senators, uh, which we got from PACOM a few years ago, showing how the balance of forces in the region has changed from 1997 to 2016. Uh, and it's, it, it shows uh, the, the disproportion in terms of Chinese numbers, platforms, ships, planes, et cetera, in the region. Mm -hmm. I think we and our allies have to think very thoughtfully about how we're going to begin effectively redressing that balance. Because I think I'm very concerned that if we don't effectively deter kinetic aggression in the region better than I think we're doing now. I agree with Dr. Mastro that operationally we have a lot of advantages, but if we continue to allow the balance of power to shift there is a danger that they may get opportunistic and may move quickly in some area. And I'm really concerned about Taiwan, for example, mm -hmm. becoming a flashpoint. Mm -hmm. I'm also concerned uh, what we don't want is, is a confrontation to become escalating armed aggression. Right, thank you. So the point is that, the, and, and I'll try and be quick, the armed services, are the, are the, by preventing that, are also the foundation for the tools of soft power to work. So I would say we need to restore the deterrent more strongly, we need to build tools that allow us to get our narrative out, which we're not doing effectively. I think you have laid the basis for that with ARIA, and I would work on how the State Department can be more effective in that. And then I think we have to think very strongly about how we can make the WTO more effective and on a multilateral basis in dealing with the broader set of tactics. Mm -hmm. the, the WTO tools are not sufficient. Let me turn it off to Master. I think China, as I mentioned, wants to dominate the Indo-Pacific, but it just wants veto power everywhere else. So I don't think they want to really replace the United States. They just want to displace the United States in order to uh, widen their own freedom of maneuver. China wants, in capitals around the world, countries to ask themselves first, what would China think? And second, what would the United States think? 
I would say in terms of the global system, they do want to change it, but they don't want to overthrow it. It's not that they hate all aspects of it, uh, some they benefit from, but the aspects that they don't benefit from, they either render those ineffective, like in terms of the human rights commissions, or um, they try to change those institutions from within. In terms of the three things that we should do about it, the first I just want to double down uh, on the restoring the deterrent. Right now, China, this is China being deterred. We're seeing the best of Chinese behavior right now. And that's because China does not have faith in its own military capabilities. But that's not going to be the case forever. They've embarked on a massive military reform program that by their estimation should be done by 2025. I'm very concerned if the United States doesn't make some significant changes, not only in the quality of some of our platforms, but the quantity. Uh, because that becomes very important in conflicts that China is no longer going to be deterred by that time frame. The second thing I think we need to do is invest at home. Now, I'm a military specialist, um, but I look at the economic power as the basis for U.S. power in the world. I heard a statistic yesterday that China is now graduating more data scientists out of one university than we are um, in all of our universities combined. And so I think providing the necessary incentives for research development and, and improving our education at home is one way we need to compete. And lastly, we need to get serious about global leadership. Uh, in my view, an American first strategy is a very Chinese strategy. We need to be thinking more about our role in the world, and that includes building new institutions. I am not surprised that institutions built decades ago can't handle what to do about cyber, what to do about attacks in space. Um, <coughs> And, and other norms of behavior in terms of the standards for AI, for example. So we really need to get serious again uh, about building institutions and enhancing our global leadership. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Senator Rubio. Thank you both for being here. Um, there's a concept war of choice. It's where a nation sort of picks a time and place of their choosing in which to engage militarily for purposes of uh, some, somewhere where they think they can wrap up the conflict quickly, but they do it first to project power, to sort of send the message that we have capability. Second of all is to build capacity, to learn where their weaknesses are and build upon it. Uh, what in the short and midterm do either of you think is the risk of a war of choice by China, whether it's a border conflict with Vietnam that they could quickly wrap up, a Taiwan contingency, but some military engagement in which they are able to choose the timing and the place of it, they can wrap it up before there could be US or other intervention, and in the process sort of prove uh, to the world some muscularity, some of their capability, and also learn a little bit about their weaknesses, and in essence use it almost as a uh, low-risk uh, military exercise. Uh, sir, I think the likelihood of that is quite high, uh, especially in the timeline that I laid out. So one of the big issues with the military reforms was that um, the Chinese military has never conducted a joint operation before. The idea that you know, the Air Force and the Navy could work together. And in most contingencies, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, that is what's necessary. So Xi Jinping, when he came into power, he took a look at the military forces and decided they're not ready to fight and win. And so he has this phrase of preparing for military struggle. And that was the whole reform period. And so in my view, uh, they need to test those capabilities against uh, opponents that they know they can win because there's also domestic political factors here. The Chinese people are paying attention to how much money they're spending on the military, even as the economy is slowing. So it would look very bad for the Chinese not to perform well. Um, and they need to make sure that they can perform well before they take on 
you know, a, a reunification with Taiwan or a U.S. Uh, treaty ally that could bring in the United States. So uh, my bets are on a naval skirmish with Vietnam. Um, I think it probably won't be on the border because they, th they're not practicing as much ground operations as they are uh, air and naval operations. But I think we might see some more forceful actions uh, after they militarize the islands in the South China Sea in which they try to occupy some of the, the islands that are currently occupied by others. Yeah, I think they are, they are legitimately, sincerely concerned about their operational capabilities. This is a constant theme. Uh, it is very significant that they have undertaken this reorganization of the armed forces. It's their, their parallel to the Goldwater-Nichols reforms that we engaged in about 35 years ago. Uh, Xi Jinping constantly talks about the need to train for combat. Uh, they talk about the five incapables, their concerns about what their military can do operationally, and I think they respect the operational effectiveness of the United States. So I think they would like to get through that reorganization before they actually test it. Uh, I think they may be underestimating how long it's going to take to really make that work. Uh, they may say it's done, but they haven't, but, but they may not really have matured as a force. But I think when that is done, I agree. I think uh, they will attempt something, probably with one of their neighbors. I don't think Xi Jinping, even if and he talks about having a world-class military in 2035. He's going to be in his 80s. I don't think even if he thinks he's going to be in power that he wants to wait that long. So I think they'll be patient until they work their way through that. They could continue to be patient as long as they feel they're winning by this salami slicing. But they could also move. And I'll just add this. One of the dangers of the United States moving, as you all and the executive branch have moved in the last few years, to rebuild the tools to come up with uh, you know, a relevant doctrine to build new institutions is uh, the more effective they see us doing this, uh, and, and in particular if we are successful in some local kinds of confrontation, uh, the greater danger that they may decide to express uh, their in intentions and their ambitions you know, militarily. And there is a parallel for that, of course, in the late uh, 1930s, early 1940s, when we used economic tools very effectively against another rising Asian power, and they decided uh, that they would try and take us out. Now, I don't think that they're planning that. I don't think they want that, uh, but I don't think it's impossible either. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Uh, Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for organizing this briefing for your uh, compelling opening statements. Uh, and thank you, Senator Talent, Dr. Mastro, uh, for sharing your expertise uh, with us today. It is hard to think of any challenge more consequential to the world we live in today and the world we will live in tomorrow than an ascendant China. Uh, if politics is to stop at the water's edge, then surely this committee can and should work together with our administration uh, to develop a sustained and bipartisan strategy for dealing with China. And I look forward to working with members of this committee to shape legislation uh, that will form our country's response to China's challenge. Um, last year, I worked closely with a number of members of this committee uh, to pass the BUILD Act, uh, which will create a 21st Century Development Finance Corporation uh, that will guarantee roughly $60 billion a year in private sector investment. It has revamped tools with our private sector to be more effective. Um, that finance corporation will be up and running by October, um, and I look forward to working with the administration and members of this committee to ensure it provides a transparent alternative 
to China's Belt and Road Initiative through American investments consistent with best international practices in labor, environment, and social standards. China will be holding a major Belt and Road Conference in April. Um, I think international participants should know there are alternatives to China's much larger Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Dr. Mastro, if I could, um, how should we ensure that international officials who attend that conference understand the risks of Chinese investment and that the United States has new tools available to facilitate investment in developing countries? Sir, thank you for that question. I think the first issue, and it's a very difficult issue, and I don't mean to suggest that this is the case for all leaders, but in some cases in the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not that the leaders of places don't know, but in some cases they are being bribed by the Chinese to accept um, the Chinese money over other sources of money that might be better for their country. So I think the bigger issue here is a good governance issue um, that's gonna be difficult for the United States to compete in some countries where leaders would prefer to take whatever the Chinese are giving them over what the United States gives them. But there are many that want higher quality, even infrastructure. Right. Um, when I was, I spent a couple weeks driving through Central Asia, and just anecdotally, people would say, you know, the Chinese built this road, it'll last us four or five years. We wish someone else was willing to build it. So in terms of getting the word out about what the United States is doing, especially, you know, partnerships with the private sector to encourage more private investment abroad, um, I think a lot of that is going to fall on the State Department in terms of our relationships with these countries. We could even think about holding our own types of fora to bring different countries together or an institution that could bring countries together to focus on good governance, good practices uh, in terms of infrastructure. Um, also, I think there is an aspect of that in which the United States has to ensure that it has its own house in order uh, in terms of in infrastructure to provide kind of that positive example to other countries around the world. Well, and Dr. Master, I, I agree with the response you gave to an earlier question that sort of posited, should we be investing more in infrastructure or sustaining our humanitarian uh, work around the world? And I think the answer is to do both and do them better, mm -hmm. uh, make sure that our uh, programs are, are efficient and targeted. But um, the goodwill that we've earned, um, the close alliances and values-based partnerships we've earned through effective humanitarian relief around the world, um, we have to also complement by showing up. Most African heads of state I've met with in the last eight years um, would prefer American investment, American technology, American partnership, but we've gotten out of that work. I think we need to re-engage and compete. Um, Senator Talent, thank you um, for your service on um, the commission um, that you described. Your 2018 report includes 10 key recommendations, um, including um, requiring a number of reports from different parts of our government to ensure that every major U.S. government department and agency is appropriately preparing for uh, the challenges that China presents. I'll give just quick examples. Um, the report recommends the DNI conduct an assessment of China's access and basing facilities along the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. um, and it directs Department of Defense and Homeland Security to examine the implications of changes to the Chinese Coast Guard's command structure. Um, given this robust uh, reach and range of recommendations, um, would you recommend that Congress uh, take up debate and pass a statute directing that these recommendations be implemented to ensure that they are heard and followed uh, in the executive branch? Yeah, I fully supported the recommendations, and you could do it, I think, in appropriations or by statute, whatever would be a good way of doing it. I, I do think that, that we have to be aware and assess constantly what the intentions of the Chinese are in a number of different areas. And we're developing that capability now. 
Uh, again, we're in a time of transition, but we have to be able to make those assessments. And on your, if I may just comment on your earlier question very briefly, I think there's a real opportunity for us here uh, with, with the Build Act because, as the committee knows, the Chinese narrative regarding One Belt, One Road is in some trouble. Uh, there are a number of different countries. You mentioned Africa, Sri Lanka, there's a whole lot of places uh, where, where uh, people are having a hangover after doing these deals and realizing what it means in terms of their debt. They see Chinese companies bring in Chinese workers. They see environmental standards degraded. And so I think in terms of the competition and the policy, we could do a lot with a little if we could amplify the narrative while we were doing it. And I hope in implementing and overseeing the implementation of the Build Act, you pay real attention to using what we're doing. And, and, and it's a very legitimate narrative that we're doing it the right way and helping people. And I would not underestimate the impact on Beijing of even small investments in strategic places. Uh, they're really throwing their weight around in Southeast Asia now. And if we go in there with some investments in a different model, we will occupy, the lights will go on in Beijing at night and they're going to have to figure out what we're doing. It's a way of countering and occupying them and taking the initiative. The, the Build Act, the new structure of this new development finance institution literally encourages and allows us to do things in a multilateral way yes. with the Australians, with the Japanese, with the New Zealanders, with um, Scandinavian countries. And so I think it allows us to re-engage with some of our critical allies in exactly that work. Uh, I'm looking uh, for co-sponsors for a bill that would implement uh, the recommendations uh, of your report, and I hope to be introducing that legislation soon. Thank, Thank you both for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, both for your testimony today. Uh, Chairman, thank you very much for holding this hearing, and thanks uh, again for the work this committee is doing and has done on China. Uh, we're at a true inflection point in the relationship between the United States and China. You know, the questions we have to ask, what trade-offs will be made? Uh, what cost are we willing uh, to endure with those trade-offs? Whose values will determine and shape the future of trade, diplomacy, human rights, rule of law? As stated in our national security strategy, for decades U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. The challenge before us now is identifying what tools, uh, policy tools, the United States has at its disposal and how we shape and execute a comprehensive and effective strategy to deal with Beijing and to chart a new course for U.S.-China relations. This is why in the 115th Congress, uh, Senator Markey and I held four hearings in our subcommittee dedicated to China, including a three-part series of hearings titled The China Challenge, which examined how the United States should respond to the challenge of a China that seeks to upend and supplant the U.S.-led liberal world order. The hearings examined security, economic, and human rights implications of a less than peaceful rise by China. At one of our hearings, Dr. Graham Allison of Harvard uh, University astutely observed, as realistic students of history, Chinese leaders recognize that the role of the United States has played since World War II as the architect and underwriter of regional stability and security has been essential to the rise of Asia, including China itself. But they believe that as the tide that brought the United States to Asia recedes, America must leave with it. Much as Britain's role in the Western Hemisphere faded at the beginning of the 20th century, so must America's role in Asia's as the region's historic superpower resumes its place. That's why Senator Markey and I led the passage of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, which was signed into law on December 31, 2018. We will not simply allow America uh, to recede with the tide. 
In order to deal with an assertive China, we first and foremost need a stronger network of allies and partners in, in the Indo-Pacific, as you have stated. And that is exactly the intent of the Asia Reassurance Initiative. And I hope the administration will fully fund and fully implement the strategy and the funding that is mandated by the legislation. Uh, we've talked in this hearing about the needs for security, authorizes uh, dollars for an Asia-Pacific security initiative, uh, counterterrorism, maritime domain awareness, South China Sea, freedom of navigation operations. Uh, it authorizes legislation to address intellectual property theft in China, legislation dealing with cyber initiatives, legislation that could uh, create a cyber league of the Indo-Pacific states to counter China's behavior when it comes to uh, it, their approach to the internet and the cyber field. Uh, this is an opportunity for this Congress to build out on that. China has no qualms uh, or doubt about the direction that it is headed, the leadership that it seeks, the dominance that it pursues. Many of our values are and will be in direct conflict with China. But we must build on the strategy of the Asia Reassurance Initiative, be ever-present throughout the region, and never forget that the long-term interests of the United States will be met and delivered or denied in Asia. A great power competition defined American exceptionalism. Uh, we will not let it write the last chapter of U.S. power. Uh, the question I want to start with is this. If we simply want China to be a less uh, concerning business environment to do business in, we talked about this uh, yesterday, Dr. Mastro, um, if we simply want China to be a less concerning place to do business in, to deal with, uh, and yet we want more trade, we want more opportunity there, we're simply tying ourselves to a nation whose human rights uh, uh, and governance is at odds with our own, making it more difficult to extract ourselves later on or to influence future behavior uh, when they don't change their behavior. Uh, can we do both? Senator Talents, Dr. Mastro. Uh, how do we influence their behavior in terms of their economic... If our interest is simply to make more trade deals with them, to invest more with them, are we simply making a deal with a country that's human rights are at odds with ours, or beliefs on rule of law are at odds with ours, or can we use that to change their behavior in a significant way? Oh, I think we can use economic tools uh, to change their behavior. I think the problem, and that's the administration is exploring doing that. I mean, it's, it is doing that. It's using the leverage and the tools that it has available. And I think we have a lot of clout in that standpoint because uh, we have a big trade deficit with, with China. We're a big customer. In other words, uh, to the extent that the, the, the trade becomes an issue, they have more to lose than we do, and I think that they view it that way, okay? I think the problem we're going to have with this is that they know they, that that economy needs to grow, okay? Not only so that they can... Uh, get the resources they need to support the uh, the objects of the state, right, to fund the military buildup and the others, but also because uh, the Chinese leaders are very well aware they need a measure of legitimacy with the people, right? They can't do it all through repression. And as you know, uh, the, uh, the deal is uh, the Chinese Communist Party continues to rule the country and they deliver a better quality of life to the Chinese people. Now, they are not going to engage in the economic liberalization that would mean giving up control of vital parts of the economy uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. So they've got to get that wealth somehow. And what I've said very often, I've written this in additional views on, uh, on commission reports, I think they're going to be moving in the direction of more of the same kind of illicit activity we've, we've seen in the past because they have to figure out ways to get growth. I think the economy is slowing more than they admit. I think the imbalances are a big problem. They have a lot of weaknesses. 
Uh, I think their currency is in some trouble. So I, uh, no, I don't think deals with them are, are, are the way to go, and I don't think it's going to change behavior. I don't think they have much choice but to continue trying to do what they're going to do because they're not going to take the next step to have a truly liberal market economy. Dr. Mestre. So I think one of the difficulties of the United States leveraging economic power is like economic sanctions, one country doing it alone doesn't have a great impact because uh, China can substitute its trade by going somewhere else. Um, and I don't think they're going to make some of the structural reforms that we want because primarily the party wants to stay in power and there's no amount of threatening we can do that would cause them to make changes to human rights or to the economy domestically if they think it will undermine their power. So I really think this is an area where coalitions matter because China will only stop behavior when it doesn't work. And so to date, China is able to engage in you know, the theft of, international, of, uh, of IPR or to force um, foreign companies to give them technologies and information because all countries are allowing it. And so I think the focus of our effort should be less on China and more ensuring that we're on the same page with private business and companies. And I think in the United States, we now are, though that wasn't always the case. But private businesses are not on the same page with their governments elsewhere in other countries, in, in some cases, are allies and partners. So if the international community somehow could come together and say, just because China's only targeting the Philippines today, or only targeting South Korea today, or only targeting the UK today, we don't want to take the economic costs associated with that, so we all turn a blind eye. And the bottom line is, unless the United States is the most powerful country in the world stands up to China in these areas, no other country is willing to do so. So I think it's a step in the right direction to, for the United States to be willing to absorb some costs uh, itself economically to signal to China that this behavior won't be tolerated. But in the end, we really do need to think about the international system and building um, more pressure globally on China to stop whether it's cyber-enabled espionage to the stealing of uh, intellectual property. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, for uh, calling this hearing most instructive and, and informative. And I appreciate very much uh, both of you uh, being here and testifying today and the work that you're doing on an ongoing basis. Um, uh, it, it's said, obviously, that uh, demogra demographics are destiny, and, and uh, uh, they have, what, uh, uh, approaching 1.4 billion people, and so they're going to be about four times our size. What that means is that ultimately their economy will be larger than ours. At some point, it'll be substantially larger than ours, and their investment in the military can be greater, their investment in technology can be greater, education, and so forth. So in, in a setting like that, in my view, the only way that one is able to uh, succeed and prevent that uh, from occurring uh, would be for us to link arms in a very strong way with our allies around the world that share our values, uh, economic values, human rights, and so forth. And that allows us to have the same uh, economic and, and, if you will, demographic clout that, um, uh, that it will have. Um, I, I'm concerned that there is a perception that somehow China will be dissuaded from action by virtue of shame or being called cheaters or, or you know, people who thieve uh, intellectual property. My perception is things that we consider to be shameful, they consider to be praiseworthy and laudable, and they celebrate. And, and they only will respond to things which they believe are in their self-interest. And in changing the perception of self-interest, I believe it's essential for us, as, as you both indicated, for us to have a much stronger uh, a series of actions to strengthen our relationship with allies. 
And there, we've all said that, but I'm interested in your perceptions as to what things we can do in the region and globally to specifically strengthen our, 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 our associations with our allies militarily and economically or, and diplomatically such that we, uh, we present a much more, uh, uh, a stronger um, uh, face to China such that they recalculate what's in their self-interest. They decide that instead of uh, fighting and, and pushing that they're better off uh, to work together with us. So I'm, I, I appreciate your, your thoughts about specifically um, uh, the, uh, the sense we have now. We, some of us celebrate that, that the EU is in trouble. I don't celebrate that. I want the EU to be stronger. Uh, we, we, we tell nations, hey, you go off and do your own thing. No, no, I want them to, we need to all come together because what's in the best interest of the United States of America is also in the best interest of these other countries and combining with them is essential for us long term. So how do we strengthen those ties? What things, what, what should be our priorities? What actions should we take to be stronger with our alliances uh, as opposed to uh, more atomized? Well, sir, I, I will answer your question. Uh, first, I just want to highlight, you know, I completely agree about the economic power issue. China's economy might be bigger than that of the United States, but that of the United States and the EU together, it won't be. And so thinking in terms of these coalitions is very important. And uh, going back to the cyber-enabled espionage, this is a perfect example of what I highlight of how they exploit weaknesses in the system. Um, this was something that countries didn't really do before until China started um, doing it on such a grand scale, I mean. So uh, we do have to think about we have to find our weak spots before the Chinese do, in a lot of cases. In terms of improving our relationships with allies and partners, my concern is I don't think we're really trying to do that right now. Uh, in a lot of cases, it really just requires uh, good diplomacy. And especially with the EU, one of the issues is that our European partners would say that they don't really have any security concerns with China. You know, China's an economic partner to them and the security concerns lie in the region and they lie between China and the United States and no one else. And so I think what we need is less a China strategy and more a new type of US foreign policy that with it uh, highlights how US leadership in the world is beneficial for everyone and how if China undermines that leadership in Asia, for example, that will have great impact on what the United States and the European Union um, can do in regions that are potentially more important to our European allies. And so I don't have, uh, I argue that we need to be more entrepreneurial in our approaches, but I don't have something amazingly innovative for you besides the fact that I think we need to show up we need to uh, invest more in our diplomatic efforts in the region, invest more in uh, economic investment uh, in Europe, and um, and try to convince them that the security issues that are existent in Asia impact them as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think the most effective um, immediate reassurance of our allies uh, in the region and potential partners, and the thing that would cause them to want to, to work with us uh, comes down to something pretty simple, Senator, which is um, rebuilding the armed forces to the point where we can increase our forward presence in the region. In other words, they need both, that will be a sign of our commitment that will assure them that we're capable of deterring actual Chinese aggression, which Senator Rubio asked about. And it's really the indispensable attribute of a world leader. It's, it's, it's saying, it's, I think it have the similar impact that Reagan's rebuild did in the 1980s. Um, the armed forces both perform a really important function but also send a really important and reassuring message. 
and, and will suggest to other countries like the ASEAN countries that the wind is still blowing in America's direction, that they don't need to and shouldn't cut a deal with China. Now, one specific economic tool the Commission recommended um, is, is instituting with other countries what's called a, and I had to get it to read it because this is not my area of expertise, uh, a non-violation nullification or impairment case against China. There is, uh, th there is a provision in the WTO that permits countries to bring a sort of global case against a country, not based on any specific violation, but saying that a number of different actions taken together, Mr. Portman probably could give you chapter and verse on this, given his experience, is nullifying the benefits of WTO membership to a number of other countries. Uh, Dr. Mastro mentioned the fact that we have not updated or worked on new institutions that are appropriate for 21st century challenges like this one. And I really think, I know this is part of your remit and also, I guess, the Finance Committee, to look at the tools of the WTO. And, and it's going to be much easier, it's still hard, but much easier to use the existing institution in innovative ways than it will be to try and come up with some some new institution for controlling illicit economic activity. And this is what the commission recommended. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank both of our witnesses. Uh, clearly, uh, as the chairman and ranking member stated in their opening uh, statements, there's multiple issues and challenges in regards to our relationship with China. But I want to follow up first, if I might, on the trade front. I was your exchange recently. We had a hearing uh, yesterday in the Finance Committee on WTO and how it has evolved uh, over the last 25 years. Uh, and the fact that when we entered WTO, we had a lot of hope that it would deal with uh, non-market economies in a way that we would have a, a more level playing field as, they, as these economies emerged. And then shortly after we we established WTO, we had the discussion about China's secession of the WTO. And uh, it was a controversial issue here in Congress. And we recognized that we had to deal with China. We wanted to use international norms to deal with China. Uh, and we were hopeful that by joining the WTO, it would evolve over time to deal with the challenges of non-market economies. At the ministerial meetings over the last decade, there's virtually been no progress made uh, on dealing with these issues. So I, I sort of want to get at least your views as to what should be our agenda, uh, the bilateral discussions between the United States and China, the multilateral discussions. There will be a ministerial meeting in 2020 uh, with the WTO. But we've allowed China to emerge as a, as a major economic power without having to comply with normal standard trade rules. China's, I would argue, its number one objective is to be a world-dominant economic power and then to use that for its influences globally. But it's, it is focused on becoming a world economic power. And we are allowing that to take place without having a fair level playing field. And you know, I, I applaud the President's efforts in the bilateral discussions to do this. It's going to be challenging to see that happen if we don't have multilateral support 
for our discussions with, with China. And of course, the United States is not part of TPP, which would have given us a broader bargaining unit in order to deal with the challenges of China. I give you one example that has come to my attention of an immediate problem is that China uses uh, the Mongolia's cashmere as a, uh, as a way to get value for export, uh, and Mongolia doesn't have the right to directly use the, the general system of preferences to get their cashmere here in, in the United States. It's an issue we're going to work with a separate bill. But it, it just shows how strategic they are at every industry to try to get an economic advantage and control that through its central government rather than through market forces. What, how can we be strong with our trading partners to change the international trading rules so non-market economies do not have the type of advantages they have today uh, as witnessed by China's growth? Well, sir, I think this really highlights a point uh, from the previous question about, you know, what the United States can do to reassure. And, and while I think, obviously, in, I believe in the effectiveness of the military as a tool of national power, a lot of countries in the world and many of our allies and partners don't face the military threat of China. So they're primarily concerned about these trade and economic issues, and they want to see leadership from the United States in this area. But China is the number one trading partner of many of our allies. China, I think, is one trade agreement away from having more formal trade agreements in Asia than the United States does. So are we making a mistake by doing it alone, bilateral, without multilateral discussions? Well, sir, I think we need, we need to have some free – there's many free trade agreements that we could do bilaterally in the region that we have not signed. We also need to move forward. Maybe TPP wasn't the best answer, uh, but we do need to take seriously – the economic arrangements that we have with countries around the world, and that's difficult given that there, the United States has to be serious about free trade and there are some protectionist tendencies. And how do we deal country. with the local pressures of commerce that like inexpensive products? So they'll take the short-term gains of having inexpensive products enter our market when we lose the long-term capacity of economic growth. Well, sir, I would just say that's a very difficult question. And one of the big issues, for example, in terms of pressuring China to make market reforms, like not requiring joint ventures, for example, is that if the United States is the only one doing it, U.S. businesses are going to be harmed and less competitive compared to uh, businesses from other countries. And so in this back and forth between China and the United States, we really have to um, push other countries as well to take as much of a stance on these issues or else we will be more uh, at a disadvantage if we're the only ones doing it. I, I, I just conclude on this. I agree with that, but it seems to me the way this has been set up with just the bilateral discussions while we're having trade disagreements with our traditional trading partners on other issues such as aluminum and steel and auto parts, yes, that uh, it puts us in a weaker position in trying to get the type of good governance concessions in the trade discussions with China that we desperately need to have. One of the good things about TPP was that we had a good governance section in that bill to deal with non-market economies uh, because there were non-market economies in TPP. It's going to be challenging for the United States alone to be able to negotiate those types of terms in a bilateral discussion. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, I'm next going to call Mr. on Mr. Senator Chairman, could I just say a couple things in response to Senator Cardin? And I, I promise I'll be very brief. 
Thank you. Senator, that's always a risk, but I'm no, going to I'm, take it. Multilaterally, I mentioned to Senator Romney, the, the, there are tools available to the WTO. They have not been used very extensively for a number of countries to bring a case based on global kinds of illicit activities, a range of illicit activities. I would do that. Bilaterally, I think we ought to set an example around the world by enforcing our own laws. You're probably aware that uh, the Chinese companies listed on American Stock Exchange don't comply with the rules of the SEC and the auditing requirements because we're not permitted to audit the Chinese auditing firms, and yet we continue to allow them to be listed. And that's uh, something, I, when I saw that, I thought, why in the world? And the other thing is, I think you should consider developing tools as we get into this back and forth trade, whether multilateral or bilateral. There are going to be sectors of our economy that get hurt. You addressed with the farm issues is one, but, but consider other kinds of tools to assist companies that are, that are taking collateral or taking damage because when the Chinese react. I, I think it would be an interesting tool that would empower administrations. Thank you, Senator Cardin. I'm next going to call on Senator Portman, but before I do, uh, I want to note that uh, in this hearing, we really haven't touched at all uh, uh, on the uh, type of uh, infusion that the Chinese have done in our institutions, be they national labs, be they the education system, or as you just referred to, Senator Talent, the uh, uh, our, our stock markets and that sort of thing. And that is probably a, uh, an item for a hearing in and of itself because it's so broad. But I do want to include in the record uh, the 93-page report that was issued February 22nd, 2019 by the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, uh, which is a subcommittee of the uh, Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs uh, entitled China's Impact on the U.S. Education System, and it deals with the Confucius Institu uh, Institutes and those kinds of things, all of which was chaired by our own Senator Rob Portman. And uh, so I'm going to put that in the record, and with that, I'll yield to Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate your holding this hearing. It's another good opportunity for us to take a broader view here. We've talked about military, soft power, trade tools, um, so much to do with regard to China. I will, if it's okay, uh, ask a question in a moment about the Confucius Institutes. And, and Chairman's right, we had an eight-month investigation and found some disturbing things about lack of reciprocity and lack of transparency uh, that I want to I want to touch on with, with you, Mr. Talent. Uh, thanks to both of you and Jim for your service on the commission over the years. Um, just quickly on the on the trade issues in WTO, a lot of good um, points made this morning by Senator Romney, uh, Senator Cardin, and others. China has wanted to get out of non-market. Um, uh, status for a long time. As you know, we have been the ones that have pushed back. We have to continue to push back. Uh, they are a non-market economy. They still, unfortunately, under this new administration in China, they have even more focus on their state-owned enterprises. And we also have to deal with this issue of self-certifying on developing status. Uh, because of this growing uh, economy that they have, they're taking advantage of what developing countries, truly developing countries, uh, are are able to use in the WTO system. And so there are things that can be done, as you say, even within the system. The nullification would require us to get the EU and Japan strongly on board. Uh, they have reason to do that, and I agree with you uh, that we need to be more multilateral in how we approach it. But I will say this administration has done the right thing, in my view, with regard to the 301 case. As tough as it is for some of my Ohio farmers and, and manufacturers and, and others, and I hope, we all have to hope, that by the next few weeks, we'll have some, some good news coming out of those negotiations. If so, we will, for the first time, have dealt with some of the structural issues. 
Um, you're right, we need to use our own tools more. We have a 269% tariff in place on, on rolled steel from China right now as an example because we did pass legislation here three years ago. We're now using much more aggressively to go after dumping and subsidization, but it's way broader than that. And, it, and intellectual property obviously is the focus of the 301. On the Confucius Institutes, just quickly, what we found out was $158 million has gone from the Chinese government into these Confucius Institutes uh, over the last uh, half dozen years. And it's amazing to me that, um, you know, we don't hear more from the academy on this because you've got about 100 colleges and universities that have Confucius Institutes now. And they come with strings attached. And I think those strings can compromise academic freedom. I don't know if you've looked into this much, but any thoughts you had on that, Jim, would be appreciated. Uh, the Chinese government vets and approves all the Chinese directors, the teachers, the events themselves, the research proposals, the speakers at Confucius Institutes. Uh, Chinese teachers also sign contracts with the Chinese government saying that they will follow Chinese law and conscientiously safeguard China's national interests. Uh, any thoughts on Confucius Institutes? Yeah, and the influence goes beyond just the Confucius Institutes because the influence of the money, uh, the participation, it, it, it's causing scholars in the field, uh, in some cases, to, you know, to self-censor, to be very careful about what they say uh, because they won't have access to grants, they won't be able to travel to China as they, as they need to. It's a real problem. Uh, I, I would encourage you even to broader the, broaden the approach and look at, at the work of the United Front Work Department, which is in charge of the Confucius Institutes. It's, it's, I think, the, one of the oldest organs uh, created by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they've hired tens of thousands of new cadres or employees under Xi Jinping. Uh, this whole concept and, uh, of smart, uh, not smart, sharp power. You know, we're used to soft power, smart power, hard power. Sharp power is, is uh, gray war tactics that they use extremely effectively to disrupt confuse the narrative in other countries. And they're doing it through higher ed. I do think you know, we, we, we should not view the higher academy as like our higher academy is the enemy in this. I mean, they've, they've, they didn't know what was going on any more than many other people did. But um, yeah, there's a broader narrative. And um, I think it's important that the committee become aware of the facts. And again, this is an area where we have to develop tools for countering effectively. You know, one, of the, one of the tools, Dr. Master, I want to hear from you that we've tried to develop is to have our own ability to have a presence in Chinese universities, colleges, educational system. Uh, we have failed in that because we have been blocked from doing that. That's the reciprocity concern. Mm -hmm. That while you have a growth of Confucius Institutes, by the way, there are also about 1,000 K through 12 institutions that have Confucius Institutes, primarily focused on Chinese language, as I understand it. We focus more on the colleges and universities, but it also is K through 12. We can't do that in China. In fact, we're pulling back. As of this summer, we will have no U.S. State Department presence uh, in terms of our own American values and history being taught in China. Dr. Mastro. So I think these Confucius Institutes, and in general, the, um, uh, the uh, department uh, that was previously mentioned is extremely entrepreneurial in that China does, they combined covert operations with public diplomacy which is something that the United States doesn't do. Um, and this is why they have been able to really have such an influence on, um, I think, academic discussion to a degree and also instruction because the main goal of this funding is to shape the conversation about China to ensure that people aren't saying things about China in the United States and other countries. This is a big issue about political interference that goes against what the party wants people to say. Um, 
I don't think, bottom line, it's bad to take any money from the PRC. To tell universities you know, you, that there might be a big funder that comes from China and so you shouldn't uh, engage with them, that might not be the right approach, but there needs to be s serious constraints on the amount of influence uh, that uh, China can have so it doesn't restrict academic freedom. For example, universities should be able to choose their own instructors uh, for these institutes. If they then, like with other donors, want to say, and we thank the People's Republic of China for their donation for this, that's fine. But this level of control and the lack of reciprocity is a real issue. I myself have spent time in Beijing studying and the amount to which you know the foreigners have to be kept separately at that time I can't confirm now but at that time it was not it was illegal for me to enter a dormitory to engage with Chinese students um, so I think the United States needs to demand much more of this reciprocity yeah. and Chinese um, monitors at all those institutions my, my time's expired and I apologize on the transparency issue just so you know it's not so much the fact that these schools are accepting the funding it's that they aren't reporting it and in fact, we think that about 70% of the schools are out of compliance with our own U.S. Department of Education rules on that. So at a minimum, we should have reciprocity and transparency so people know what's going on. Yes. Thank Great. you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Markey. And uh, Senator Gardner and I were able um, to pass the uh, Asia Reassurance Initiative that was signed by President Trump in December. Uh, and just more and more reports coming out of China makes it clear why we need that legislation uh, and why we have to work on a bipartisan basis to continue to deal with this China threat. Um, this morning, the Wall Street Journal detailed an internal Navy report stating that the United States Navy and its industry partners are, quote, under cyber siege. This follows an earlier report that a known Chinese hacking group is behind a series of cyber attacks on American universities as part of an elaborate scheme to steal research about maritime technology. In fact, uh, this morning's Wall Street Journal article references letters I sent this week to the Departments of Defense and Homeland Security asking how they are ensuring that sensitive and classified military information at research institutions and universities are protected. After all, in this age of great power competition, it should come as no surprise that Chinese hackers are targeting academic institutions with valuable information about U.S. military capabilities. Dr. Mastro, as someone who has worked in academia, in think tanks, and for the U.S. military, how well do you think our government is doing in ensuring that sensitive and classified material is protected at research institutions and defense contractors, and um, what more should we be doing to ensure that that information is being protected? Sir, thank you for that question. It gives me an opportunity to really highlight, I think, one of the main issues, which is that many people who don't focus on China or the China challenge are relatively naive about some of the security challenges that come with whether it's uh, having sensitive information or research at universities in which the main goal is the creation of knowledge for knowledge's sake or allowing uh, you know, Confucius Institutes to be funded. In many cases, people who are outside of this field don't understand those risks. And so it's less, I think, that the government is not protecting that information, but more that a lot of those protections aren't necessarily in place in some of these places, um, that the Chinese are able to find certain weak spots, whether it is in the networks in which the bottom line that just means we're not doing the job if they can find weak spots then we're not doing the job yes sir i i agree um i think 
I was trying to say it more diplomatically. Right. But, but yes, I think we're not doing the job and we're not, edu we're not having a whole of government approach in which people in the business community, in academia, in all fields and sectors understand the challenge of China. I, I appreciate that. Uh, now, last week, Eric Rosenbach, who has extensive experience in national security, testified that it wasn't fair to leave security up to universities and that DOD should do more to help protect information. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that, but to be a bit pessimistic, the DOD has its own issues with ensuring that its own networks are protected from hacking, and it has its own vulnerabilities Good. vis a -vis China. You're becoming less diplomatic as this question is going on. Excellent. <laughs> the, the words just have to be said. Okay? Right. They just have to be said. They're not doing the job, and, and it exposes the whole system from top to bottom, and the Chinese are attacking, and here's the words. Uh, uh, the U.S. Navy is under cyber siege right now. So I'd like now to stay on the topic of China and cybersecurity. CNN reported on Monday that rural American telecom companies have installed equipment from the Chinese firm Huawei within their cellular networks operating in close proximity to a field of intercontinental ballistic missiles outside of Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana. According to James Lewis, a cybersecurity expert at CSIS, the Chinese government, quote, could decide to interfere with ICBM command and control or with ICBM personnel, the people manning the missile silos. Dr. Mastro, with the recognition that we should be cautious about generalizing too much about the nature of the threats, what level of threat could foreign telecommunications technologies pose to U.S. ballistic missiles and their associated command and control networks? So it's my understanding from cyber experts that the degree to which this, prevent, this presents a threat depends on the exact technology, the system it's a part of, and what it's networked into. And therefore, I think this really highlights the need not only for the DOD to be focusing on cyber efforts, but for there to be more efforts for Silicon Valley and DOD to work together so that we have the technical expertise necessary to be able to adequately answer that question. Right. So can we have a high degree of confidence that you know, our existing nuclear command and control networks, given the advent of and deployment of Chinese advanced technology in close proximity to the most deadly weapons on the planet, um, in fact, may be vulnerable? Can we, how high a level of confidence can we have? What state of knowledge do we have? So, sir, I would say I'm not equipped to say whether those towers themselves present a risk, but I would say given Chinese capabilities, the risks are there and their yeah. ability we, to we, Do you think it makes sense for us to bring in um, temporarily outside cyber experts to help the Department of Defense? Would that make sense to you? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, and I thank you for that recommendation. Would you agree with that, uh, Commissioner? Yeah, I would, and uh, you know they looted our defense contractors three years ago. They're continuing to do it, and it's going to get worse as 5G rolls out, Senator. And I, I no, I agree. I mean, because the number of of devices that are going to be extant is going to go up by a factor of something like ten, and and the Chinese are engaged in a major competition to control 5G. If they do that and produce those devices, uh, we're not going to be able to trust anything that happens. Now, I will say, I. I have a fair degree of confidence in the department itself's cyber defenses, but I, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think this is something we, we have to act on. We have to plan. Again, you're being diplomatic. You're saying, I have a fair degree of confidence, okay? I don't think I well, have. You know what? You're right. And, I, and I'll put it on. this way. Yeah. I, 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 have, I have 
very little confidence okay, in good. actors outside, good. certainly, of the department, and I'm concerned about that. Okay, and yeah. We have to assume that they're going to be situationally aware about the capabilities of our, of our systems and our platforms in the event that there is a conflict, because they have reconnoitered it uh, through cyber. You've See, raised an outstanding point. My, fear, my, my feeling about the Chinese is very simple. Um, they're not 10 feet, 10 feet tall, but they have a plan. What's our plan? Who's our cyber leader in the federal government? Who's the person whose name we all know that you would call and say, what do they know about this potential threat? We don't know that person. And we can beat China in anything they do, but you need a plan. They have one. What is our plan? And you can't just have a fairly high level of confidence. You, you just can't you know, wonder whether or not uh, these um, agencies are providing extra help to the universities in order to protect the secrets that they have as well. We have to have a plan, and someone has to be able to articulate it to this committee what that plan is. Otherwise, they will exploit these secrets uh, to their advantage and our disadvantage and our allies. Thank you. Well, well said, Senator Markey. Thank you. Senator Young. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mastro, Senator Talent, for being here today. I, I have... I uh, thought that your testimony has been thoughtful, and um, it's very much related to uh, a topic that um, we've been exploring on a subcommittee that I've chaired over the last couple of years. We focused on my multilateral institutions and international economic policy subcommittee on China's predatory economic practices. And um, um, we've been inattentive as a country. Uh, you know, now for a couple of years, um, with respect to trying to address uh, China's practices in a, through a multilateral mechanism, I do see see that improving somewhat. Um, but um, it's it's kind of a drum that I keep on beating. And, and the question was just asked by what, one of my colleagues: What is the plan? A question is being asked in committee after committee, hearing after hearing. Now, in 2017, Senator Talent, um, uh, the commission that uh, you serve on, called for a plan. It called for a plan to identify gaps in U.S. technological development vis-a-vis -vis China, and following this assessment, develop and update biennially a comprehensive strategic plan to enhance U.S. competitiveness and advance science and technology. That's a plan. Uh, I have related legislation uh, calling for a national economic security strategy to be created out of the National Economic Council. Uh, you know, this is similar to what we do. We, we, we develop a national security strategy and then a national defense strategy and a national diplomacy and development uh, strategy. Why don't we have a national economic security strategy? Uh, and I may complement, frankly, my legislation with the gaps in our technological development per the Commission's recommendations. But um, this is just a, a, a huge gap. China has a plan. It's on the website. It, uh, you know, Made in China 2025. Any, anyone can Google it. We at least know strategically where they're headed. And it's hard to even know strategically what our, 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 our plan is. So we need to get our bearings on, on that front. So uh, very glad each of you has underscored that. Um, is, is there a particular mechanism through which we ought to be working multilaterally that just comes to mind, an optimal mechanism? I would have thought the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement would have been helpful, but in a bipartisan way, there was sort of a decision to abandon that approach, and I accept where we are uh, on that, uh, though there may be a way back in. 
Uh, we could work with uh, a coalition of the willing, you know, G7 or ASEAN partners, perhaps, and, and um, there, it would be a variant of, of a collective security arrangement where we would collectively agree those participating countries uh, to engage in a form of reciprocity when any one country has, has been injured through theft of intellectual property, all the other countries would bring to bear their economic weight against China, and uh, suddenly we would have a lot more leverage, something Dr. Mastro, you indicated we need to have. We cannot do this alone. We need the international community behind us if we're really going to deal with um, the deeper issues of intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers and all the things the Commission has identified here in, in um, your toolkit. So um, give me your thoughts on, on A, should Congress legislate the, the creation of some sort of strategy? Should we, should we mandate that uh, not just this administration but each successive administration produces one? Um, and then B, do you have in mind a, a particular sort of construct where the U.S. can use our convening power uh, to develop those sorts of institutions that were developed in the post-World War II time frame, updated to this new environment where we're dealing with the state capitalist model? I like the idea of uh, a, 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 an economic strategic plan. Um, I think what you might want to do is rather than the danger with this is trying to boil the sea. In other words, trying to cover too much. I, I would take it step by step. I would identify, for example, uh, skills and technologies that are, are, are going to be necessary in the national security workforce, and I would target assistance and aid in those areas. So, for example, we need, and, and, and I think the plan is there to modernize nuclear infrastructure, the strategic arsenal, but, but our skilled workforce has aged out or is aging out rapidly. So I would, I would try and walk a little bit before you run. I would pick some yeah. things. I, I like the idea of, of, of operating multilaterally uh, to, to try and recruit smaller countries and, and, and to get them working together to deal with Chinese abuses. Now, what I would do is approach uh, our allies in the region who are already working together uh, much more than they were before. I mean, with it, like with the quadrilateral group, but the Japanese, the Australians, and um, what you're going to need to do is to provide reassurances to the smaller countries, okay, that because the Chinese are going to react and, and they're going to be concerned about how they could be hit. So I think they're going to need reassurance and I think it needs to come from a group of countries that if they cooperate and help us, that we will protect them from any kind of reprisals. You're thinking along the right lines. I like the way you're updating the strategy and the doctrine. And I think when, if, if we bring a committed economic power of the United States to bear, I think a lot of these things are possible going forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, doctor, did you have any thoughts? I, I just wanted to um, also agree with the convening power of the United States. I think it would be best to think about these new institutions. For example, if you had one that you were focused largely on, you know, protection of technologies and IPR, of trying to make it a new institution versus tacking it on to one of the existing institutions, largely because in institutions are meant to be sticky. They're meant to be difficult to change, and so a lot of the issues that we have with our current institutional structure is that it is outdated to deal with contemporary issues. And so if we went that direction, which I think is, is a positive direction, I would think about starting a whole new institution versus tacking it on to the WTO or something like that. 
Thank you, Senator Thank Young. You. We've got a couple minutes before we have a vote starting. I know both Senator Cruz and Senator Shaheen want to get in on this. So Senator Shaheen, you're next. Um, thank you. Thank you both for being here. I, I'm sorry that I missed the discussion. I understand that tariffs have come up, um, but in response to the initial round of tariffs that have been imposed by this administration, China's leveled retaliatory duties on a number of U.S. products that have really affected particularly small businesses. New Hampshire, which I represent as a small business state, and we've seen a real impact on dairy products, on seafood, on a number of our small businesses that do business in China. And while I appreciate the need to get tough with those countries who cheat, and I certainly would agree that China has abused the rules, I, I wonder if there are other ways that we can do it that don't put our American businesses at a competitive disadvantage, and I wonder if either of you could speak to that. Senator, yeah, I think as we develop these tools and refine how we're going to use them effectively against China, one of the things we have to consider is what is the downside, because they're not going to sit there and do nothing, right. you know, when, when we put 10 or 25 percent tariffs on broad ranges of their products. Now, I think what, there is a lot of precedent for the Congress providing assistance in a targeted way to particular businesses or segments of the economy that get hurt by the fallout in an economic back and forth, okay? I would encourage you to think in that direction. I, I don't want to interrupt, Senator, sure, but with please. all due respect, you've been a member of this body. You know how hard it is to get something like that done, and I would argue that that would be very difficult under the current circumstances. So uh, I guess what I'm really hoping you might suggest is are there other um, incentives, disincentives, um, sticks or carrots that we have with China itself that we could use in order to address. Oh, other than a tariffs or other than this economic. Uh, yeah, but I think there, the, the, the problem is that anything we do that's going to be effective is going to provoke a response on their part. And they will try to analyze what we see as our particular vulnerabilities and leverage points, and they will try to hit those. So I don't know that going forward we're going to be able to use economic tools without them responding in a way that will cause some damage. That's why I, I, I totally agree with you about the difficulty, although I would suggest, if I might, Senator, that going forward I think there, there may be opportunities and potential as the whole government adjusts to this new era we're entering to do things that might have been considered very difficult. But no, obviously getting anything done here is, I mean, I get it. It's hard. Dr. Mastro, do you want to have And I think in general, this idea of confronting China directly and alone, whether it's in the economic sphere or other spheres, is not the best strategy. Um, to be competitive in the international system, it's not about undermining China. It's about being a better global partner. China can target us because we are acting alone. They can't put tariffs on the whole world. And so I think we need to do a better job uh, at multilateralism and our diplomacy in that arena to get countries on board. But many countries, including our allies and partners, are afraid of Chinese retaliation. And that's why, to date, it's hard to get them on board with US policies. Um, and I think some of our own diplomatic efforts in, it, under the Trump administration have not helped. Um, so I would say that uh, we need to think less about doing this alone in a bilateral trading environment and think more about how we can bring to bear pressure from uh, many different avenues. Um, 
the budget document that was just sent over to the Congress emphasizes the importance of great power competition and our need to be competitive with Russia and China. And at the same time, the budget calls for a 24% decrease in um, the State Department in diplomatic initiatives. While we're doing that, what we've seen from the Chinese is that they've increased their budget by almost an equal amount um, for foreign affairs. Can you just talk about the priorities of suggesting that the only way we can deal with um, China and the great power competition is through military might as opposed to soft power and the importance of diplomacy? One of the big issues when you look at the history of rising powers is that rising powers always build power in a different way than the predecessor. That's what makes them competitive. So just like the United States didn't build colonies, China is not going to build a system similar to the United States. Historically, the United States has relied a lot on its military power projection and foreign military intervention as key tools of foreign policy. And so moving forward, that consistently is what the United States focuses on. But China has recognized that that's how the United States does business. And so it's focused most of its efforts. Now in my testimony, I talk about some of the regional challenges with the military, but most of its efforts on political and economic power. And they have been largely successful in those areas. The bottom line is, of course, the United States needs to maintain its military edge. We need to be able to deter China and protect our allies and partners in the region. But the majority of countries, the majority of the time, are not focused on the military threat from China. They're focused on the political and economic aspects of this issue. So we should be investing much more in the State Department, USAID, and other tools of US power. Doubling down and doing more of the same uh, is, is not innovative and is not going to work, given how competitive China has been. Yes. We're, we're going to need a range of tools, that, and they need all to be robust, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you for your testimony today. China is, in my judgment, the greatest long-term geopolitical rival to the United States. Presidents in both parties have believed for decades that America could turn China from a foe into a friend through trade and diplomacy or that allowing China into rules-based institutions would turn China into a rules-based country. Instead, sadly, the opposite has happened. America can't sever commerce with our largest trading partner, nor should we, but we must recognize China for the threat it poses to our national security. There are three urgent matter, matters before America and our allies. Number one, to insulate our vulnerability to Chinese espionage and interference. Number two, to deconflict our commerce from enabling the party's human rights abuses. And number three, to compete to secure our interests. Let me focus principally on the first. Many of us are increasingly concerned that China is gaining access to American secrets by using non-traditional all-of-government or even all-of-nation approaches to espionage against us and our allies. Huawei is a Communist Party-controlled surveillance agency veiled as a telecommunications company. It has maneuvered itself into a dominant position providing infrastructure across the globe, including to partners within the Five Eyes Intelligence Network of Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Can you assess the risks presented by Huawei's commercial participation in the 5G build-out within these countries? 
So at the very least, now I don't have the ability to independently assess the degree to which Huawei is controlled by the party and whether or not there's back doors that could lead to vulnerabilities in civilian or critical infrastructure as well as, as impacts on, on military infrastructure. But what I can say is, at the very least, a Chinese company like Huawei has to do what the Communist Party asks them to do. Even if Huawei is 100% private, which which I'm not an economist, but based on some of my studies, even private corporations have very close government ties. Even if they're 100% private, even if their leadership has you know, no love lost for the Communist Party, in the end, if you're going to operate in China and it's critical enough for Chinese national security and core interests that the party asks you to do something, you have to do it. And so given those connections, I think, between companies um, in China to the government, we have to be very careful on the national security front. However, I, I think we have to be careful also not to, this is not for Huawei, but other examples, use national security issues for protectionist goals, because that really undermines the areas in which national security is really threatened. And I think we need to be, think differently about counterintelligence. We're in a different age of an intel threat that is very different than before, right? The insider threat is no longer someone that just wants money or something like that. Uh, we have uh, China who is very proactive at getting information through cyber means, but also just mass. They're not very good at it, but they have so, they have so much effort at it. So there really does have to be a broader effort in the counterintelligence sphere to your first point. We, we should not assume, uh, we should plan on the assumption that for the purposes of the national security goals of the Chinese state, private companies, companies that are technically private are, are not private. And as a matter of fact, they've been pretty explicit recently in increasing the presence and, uh, and visibility of the Chinese party, com Communist Party committees, which are attached uh, to every company, even private companies. And so I agree with Dr. Mastro, and we've said this in the commission for a number of years. There are obviously differences between state-owned enterprises and private companies for certain economic purposes, but you have to assume they're all going to do the will of the state. And you mentioned 5G. Yeah. This is a competition that the United States must win, and the Chinese understand this, and they are pushing very, very hard. They're going to control the standards if we're not careful, and they're going to control the devices. And if they do that, then espionage is going to be very easy for them. Right. Uh, last year, I, I authored and passed an amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act to prohibit DOD from funding Confucius Institutes, uh, which are one of the tools the Chinese use to penetrate American higher education. Uh, I've also introduced the Stop Higher Education Espionage and Theft Act to require the FBI to designate foreign actors conducting espionage in our colleges and universities. In your judgment, what further steps can Congress take to insulate our universities and research institutions from Chinese espionage? So if I, I don't mean to pivot, but can I add one more concern from the point of higher education? A absolutely. Which is to elevate the cases of, of scholars who are punished or retaliated against based on the research or the writing, or even US-based companies that will censor some scholars' work overseas. I myself have just canceled a trip in two weeks to China because I'm concerned about my own safety. And um, that's the first time. I, I love going to China. I spend a lot of time there. But I'm concerned that that would not be a priority back at home 
if in retaliation for what's happening in the Huawei situation, if China started harassing or detaining U.S. citizens. And so I think the, the intel aspect is very important, but we also have to recognize that um, individuals are being retaliated against uh, that work in these institutions, whether it's deny them access visas or what have you. And so that also, I think, has to be a part of the national discussion. And reciprocity ought to be the theme there. I mean, I, for example, uh, on the commission, we've looked for years, they'll deny, and this is a little outside higher ed, they'll deny or hold up visas to foreign reporters wanting to come into China. And of course, we're letting Chinese reporters in the United States all the time. When Senator Dorgan was on the commission, I mean, he and I used to talk about, why do we do, why don't we respond in kind in those kinds of a situations? Just to, and why shouldn't they keep doing it from their point of view? We don't react. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Menendez. Uh, very briefly, Mr. Chairman, because I know we have to go to vote. For, this has been very instructive, and I, I personally would like to follow up with both of you at, at, at different times on some of the elements I haven't been able to get to. But there used to be a cyber coordinator at state. Uh, uh, the administration got rid of it, and we've been working with offices on both sides of the aisle to try to bring it back. I, I hope we can do that. I think that type of action speaks to the disconnect between a confrontational approach and real policy and strategy to be competitive at the end of the day. And I, and I just want uh, to just to follow up, uh, Dr. Mastro, on your, in your very opening statement, you said uh, we have to start competing again. And one of the concerns I have is that when every time we retreat from a leadership role in the international context, we let China uh, ultimately expand its role in the global stage, whether that's the Paris Climate Agreement, whether that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, UNESCO, just to mention some. The impact of these moves has been twofold. It lets some of the country's closest allies to begin hedging their bets and they're uh, uh, decreasing the weight they give to U.S. preferences in their own decision-making because they view the United States as unreliable. And secondly, when we withdraw from agreements such as TPP, it shifts uh, economic attention to other vehicles. In this case, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a TPP-11 deal in which the U.S. isn't included. The result is the U.S. is at a disadvantage because it's unable to influence the content of either of these agreements uh, thereby missing out on both the potential benefits of increased access to these markets and the opportunity to mitigate any potentially negative effects on the U.S. economy and, and other vulnerable societies. So, you know, the, the, it, it, when we say we have to compete, I, we, we need to be in the game in all of these things in order to be able to affect the outcome. Because otherwise, our preferences, which we used to lead the world in, uh, are not are largely going to be sidelined, and when we are sidelined, then China takes advantage. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir. I think one of the big issues is not so much that China violates international norms, which is an issue, but the problem is that there are a lot of areas in which those norms have not been significantly set yet, and they're ambiguous and they're non-existent. And so we were just talking about 5G. I learned yesterday, you know, in terms of the telecommunications union, China sends very high-level representatives to ensure that standards are set in a way that is competitive for their companies, and, and we do not. And so... It seems kind of on the softer side, in my written testimony, I focus a lot on military power because I think that's an important part of U.S. power, but this competition is everywhere, and setting the, new, the norms, rules of behavior are very important. The international system is not all-encompassing, 
Uh, there are many areas where there continue to be gaps, and so that needs to be a, a focus of U.S. efforts. I, I firmly agree with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you uh, sincerely to both of our witnesses. This is an, an incredibly important issue to the United States of America, and uh, we need to continue to focus on it and bring attention to all the many issues we discussed today and many more that we didn't quite get to. So we'll be doing some more work uh, in this area. But anyway, thank you for uh, both of you for your testimony. For the information of the members, the record will remain open until close of business Friday. Uh, we would ask that uh, if you do get some questions for the record that you give us as prompt an answer as possible, understanding you're a volunteer, but uh, we need it to complete the record. So thank you so much. And with that, the committee is adjourned.